Welcome to Planet Geo, the podcast where we talk about our amazing planet, how it works, and why it matters to you. I'm recording. Check, check, check. Check, check. <laughs> it's always good to see you, and it's always funny to see you, too. I don't know why, but you just make me laugh looking at you sometimes. Well, Professor Remink, I don't know what to say to that. I'm not funny looking. I'm actually very good looking. <laughs> just ask you. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Well, so, uh, today I'm super excited, man. This is a great interview. We just finished it. We just wrapped it up. Yep. Dr. Maya Wehas, just an exceptional. This was a great interview. She is a science journalist for National Geographic. She has a particular affection, as she says it, for rocks and reactions. She, she's got a, a hell of a resume. Um, she's won the AGU's Award for Excellence in Science Journalism recently, another Excellence in Journalism Award in 2021. She was an American Academy for the Advancement of Science Fellow, which is a very prestigious fellowship uh, in 2015, has worked for the Smithsonian Magazine and now at National Geographic, and really has this interesting view of our science, I think, in our field. Yeah. Absolutely. Like, I mean, who gets this perspective, right? You're in the weeds all the time. Totally, totally in the weeds. You know, you're doing your research and, and so on. I'm in the classroom teaching very basic stuff. She's really at the middle of this kind of thing. And she gets to look at it from both sides. She gets to interact both ways and then try to bring our science, what's so near and dear to our hearts, down to everybody. And I think that's just awesome. It's so cool. And it was really fun to dive into those types of questions with her and you know things like how do you pick a topic to write about what's interesting to her and she has some amazing answers uh, it was inspiring answers in fact for me at least and i thought too the the process that she has to go through to get an article you know uh, the pitch that she has to go through you know i just i learned a ton about that i found it very interesting yeah i will always read you know national geographic articles differently now after this conversation won't you totally i agree I agree. Um, and then if you stick around to the end of the interview and she talks about her best day as a geoscientist, um, I think like it just, it gave me some warm, fuzzy feelings. When yes. she, you know, because like we're talking to a diehard geoscientist here. Absolutely. And I loved it. Uh, totally. So. Just, mm, just that mm, yep. perfect, perfect answer. All right. You yeah. are Chris Bullheis, nationally recognized earth science teacher, my former high school teacher. You teach field geology. You teach college level geology you teach earth science at the ninth grade level and astronomy um we've known each other for a long time we have and you're dr jesse rymink you're one of the best students that i've ever had oh shucks you are though you are and so if somebody is going to be one of those people that that's going to get into the weeds and you know get into these things that most like normal humans can't think about and, and begin to comprehend it, it's going to be you so a lot of respect for me going your way and uh and a lot of respect for both of us going to uh dr maya wehas this is planet geo let's get to it huh let's do it Hey, welcome to Planet Geo, and today we are extremely excited to have Dr. Maya Wehas, science writer extraordinaire and science journalist for the National Geographic right now. Welcome to Planet Geo. 
Thanks so much for having me. We are very excited to talk to you. And, and this is kind of a, a new space for us, the sort of uh, science communication and, and sort of heavy hitting science communication. So we're very, <laughs> I'm very excited. I, I've been excited for the whole week. <laughs> Oh, awesome. Well, likewise. <laughs> I do want to start off asking you, though, Maya, you got your PhD from Ohio State? Yes. Damn. So, I'm, from, <laughs> I'm from Michigan, and oh, no. I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> oh, no. Chris is a diehard U of M fan. So. Yeah. <laughs> oh, all right. Well, we'll, we'll struggle through the interview, right. Jesse. <laughs> yeah, right, right. All right, Maya, I'm going to go ahead and get us started then for the first question that we have for you today. So you have a PhD in earth science, specifically, I think it's environmental chemistry. Is that right? Environmental chemistry? It's a, Yeah, it's an earth science with an environmental chemistry focus. So how did you get into the geosciences? Was there like this aha moment for you when you just, I mean, I, I have that moment for me and I don't, I don't know if Jesse really has a moment, but I definitely do. What, what was it like for you? I mean, I think my aha moment was kind of stretched across the whole class, um, but it was really in in my freshman year of college. I didn't know anything about genome sciences, to be perfectly honest, until I took a first year seminar. At, I went to Smith College and they require you taking these first year seminars, which are supposed to be fairly heavy in the writing realm. And so I saw this course called Geo in the Field or Geology in the Field. And I was like, what in the world? That sounds awesome. And at the time, <laughs> I was not a very good writer. I really didn't like writing, hilariously. Oh, um, and wow. so thought that if I paired it with this class that got me out of the classroom and outside, it would be fine. It wouldn't have to, I wouldn't have to worry about writing so much. And I just, I absolutely fell in love with it. It sort of studying geology, just like it opened up this whole new way of looking at the world around me. And I just, it was remarkable to be able to sort of understand the deep history of the landscape where we were standing. The basis of that class is every week we went out to different sites around the area and learned about the geologic past. And our like final project was piecing together the history of a particular area with these really interesting rock units. They're sort of sedimentary layers that had been folded in really interesting ways. And so we were to study them and come up with hypotheses about how they formed. And so I just, the idea of being able to sort of read layers of sediment, like pages in a book, just like I was obsessed. Um, and so from then on, I was decided that I wanted to be a geology major and I picked up a chemistry minor later on, but that was sort of it for me. Um, that's yeah. so, so Smith college that's in the Northeast, right? It's one of these, is it the seven sisters, like historical, it was, is that the group of, of, of yeah. 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 The women's colleges. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Smith has produced some unbelievably good geologists. They have an amazing geology program, but wh where is it? Is it Massachusetts or mm -hmm. Northampton, okay. Massachusetts? Yeah. Okay. okay. Cool. Cool geology up there too, to, to learn. Super <laughs> cool geology. Yeah, it is. It was a lot of fun and really just like, it was super interesting to, to learn about all of of the various processes because that's that area is really complex and so it's just a lot of fun it doesn't hurt to get to be outside though in the northeast in the right. fall that's yeah. right that's right so pretty so to be clear though when you went into this and you decided that this is the direction you wanted to go writing wasn't a part of that yet right it took years <laughs> years okay. so i'm dyslexic so reading writing were not things that came easy to me um, and this is partly actually why I went into science in a very strange way, because for me, 
it was less about the words. It was an entire other language almost. And I could make sense of it. And it didn't have to be ordering words and pages and paragraphs because in my brain, the way my brain works, it, that just never made sense to me. And I struggled a lot with that. And so in geology, so much of it is visual pictures. And so being able to tell the stories and pictures, it was just, that was exactly what I was looking for. I love that. I, I agree with you 100%. Geology is all about the visuals. So then you went to Ohio State and got your PhD there. And since that point, you've kind of been a science communicator or, you know, writing a science writer, really. And I'm really very interested in your view of this, because from my view, I'm assuming you have this amazing view of science. Like you get to like look at all the top notch science that's being done and kind of pick and choose what you want to do deep dives into. So you must have this like really amazing sort of 30,000 foot view of science, whereas I'm in the weeds all the time <laughs> in the sort of, you know, my little random nook and cranny of science. Like, I don't know, can you sort of riff on that or tell me like, is that true? What do you think of that? Is <laughs> is that like a fun place to exist? It looks from, from my view, it looks very fun to have your job. It has its moments. It has its harder moments for sure, but it also is really fun. I mean, that's sort of the, the 30,000 foot view of science is partly why I got into journalism or communication, because throughout my entire PhD, I always, my attention was constantly straying to other topics. It was always like, oh, shiny, that's cool. <laughs> and my advisor is constantly <laughs> hand slapping. No, we need to narrow, narrow, narrow. Yeah. <laughs> that's great. I just, I really struggled to exist in the small little like speck of dust in the bigger realm. And I wanted to know about everything else. I really wanted to be able to dabble in so many other fields. I was constantly trying to look at what was going on everywhere else and see what ties there are between fields. I loved existing between fields. The idea of biogeochemistry to me was like such a cool concept. You know, it's funny to think about like, what is this? Where is the field going or where has it been? I feel like my, my view of it, while zoomed back a lot, I'm still... I don't know. I, I I would like to think I'm fairly young at this point that I haven't been in it for so long. But even in the time that I have on the analysis side, one of the things that I've been really excited to see, and this sounds kind of lame because this is like all of science, but I feel like for geology, it's huge to have incorporation of these really cutting edge technologies. Like a lot of geology methods are very sort of like they're observational. You look at it, you study it under a, a lens. Some of the tools are actually quite simple, which I think in and of itself is exciting because it provides kind of a low barrier of entry for, for a lot of analyses. But then there's sort of this whole other side of things that I don't think I really knew existed until I really started writing. And the sort of the capacities that supercomputers are opening in terms of modeling. I've been looking at some of these volcano models that are just spectacular some of what we're being able to try to figure out from seismic records of the subsurface structures i've been doing a lot of reading recently about like rewinding a little bit so there's these like big kind of blobs basically <laughs> right above the core there's a large one under the pacific a large one under africa and like they've been studied for decades and we 
The fact that we don't know what they are still or how they got there, we may think they're vaguely tied to volcanism at the surface, but a lot of people argue with either way. It's just Yeah, they have the most unoriginal name in science, I think. LLSVPs, yes. large, low, <laughs> shear wave velocity provinces. It's like the worst name in the entire world. But oh my God. They're super, yeah, those are totally cool. They're totally interesting. They're cousins, I realize, or well, sisters, cousins, brothers, I don't know. The things that, that lie just on the edges of them, that are actually like they think healthy, I believe. And sorry if that's <laughs> butchering the science. <laughs> that's my understanding of it. Are even more boring of a name. The ultra low velocity. <laughs> like, oh, <laughs> cool. It, it's like uh, you know, that's not a low barrier of entry because you have to understand what shear wave velocity. Like all this random stuff. I think you know partly why Chris and I we talked about this before. Um, we're really excited to talk to you because you kind of live in this intersection actually between Chris and I a little bit, you know, like he's an amazing communicator and educator. And, you know, I, I do some of that, but mostly do a lot of the research. And so you're, you kind of live in that intermediate space, which is, I think, a really interesting space. So, yeah, that's that's really cool to hear what you're excited about in the geosciences from the research perspective. That's totally cool. Yeah. yeah. I have to say, though, the other thing, I mean, stepping back a little bit from research, the other thing that I've been really exciting to see a big push for is more diversity and representation in geoscience. Yeah. I think it's a huge challenge when we're talking barriers to entry. I mean, I guess that's sort of a different concept of a barrier to entry, but I think it's something that is long overdue to be addressed. And in just the last couple of years, it feels like it's finally being talked about. And as an undergrad in grad school, all of that, I feel like it, and it, I'm sure the conversations were happening, but I was unaware of them. And it, yeah. um, I am Chinese and a woman. And so just, I still remember my very first like AGU meeting. I remember going to a working event there and I was so excited, like unbridled enthusiasm going into this mentor session. Like I'm going to find my mentor that's going to take me on to the rest of my career. And I walked up to this um, person who worked at the USGS and I told him it was my ambition to work at the USGS. That was what I wanted to do at that time. This was back in college. Um, and he looked me up and down and honestly, I've, I've blocked out his exact words, but essentially it was, you need to be much older and a white male to ever make it in this world as a geoscientist. Uh, wow. God. And I just remember being heartbroken and I know it's like one ignorant person, but he represents a, more people, I think, than I want there to be in yeah. the field of geoscience. So, yeah, yeah. yeah you don't. Totally. That's amazing to me. You don't seem old enough to have, you know, had something like that said to you. That's that's astounding. Yeah, that seems so old school. Yeah, it was, and I've run into more of them than I would like to admit. I think throughout my time in the sciences, and even now, I mean, I think it's just. It's hard. I experience a lot of the same things as a woman journalist because it's just sort of the world we live in. But I I think that it's really important for this conversation to finally be happening for geosciences because it just it's it, I think for a long time it just wasn't really spoken about out in the open. Yeah. As an aside, we typically don't ask that question because some people are not comfortable with it, but we're very much in line with that. Mm -hmm. So if you want to add more yeah. personal stuff in there, we don't want we don't want people to feel uncomfortable with personal stuff. But if you're willing to and interested and you can we can keep going 
and add things like that. So that's great. Yeah. yeah, I think that it's really important to talk about because I think for me, at least this has been, it's been a huge part of me trying to find my way through geoscience, through science in general, to be honest, even through journalism. And I think that the fact that it's so many people are uncomfortable talking about it is it's, um, I totally respect that a lot of people don't want to because it's a really touchy subject, but like, I think it's, I, I think it's really important to be talking about the things that make us uncomfortable. Uh, on your journalism note, I, I don't know many journalists, but what I've heard is that it's similar. I mean, it, it's it's not more welcoming, let's say. Is that, <laughs> have you, in, in your experience, has that been true? It depends on the circles where, where you are, really. There are places, there are pockets of people that are really working hard to increase diversity, to increase diverse voices. On the flip side of that, I think it's also journalists' responsibility to do the same. Something that I am consistently trying to do, and sometimes I achieve it and sometimes I don't um, because we're working on deadlines and at some point the story has to be done, but having more local voices. If an earthquake happens in a particular place, trying to find scientists either who studied in that area or are there now, like local scientists, local voices. I mean, I think all of that is is really important to be featuring and highlighting, right, bringing up, because I think as journalists, we have that responsibility to, to be highlighting um, diverse voices. And I think on the flip side, it, it also helps in, I would like to think, um, in their their scientific path. So having them featured gives them some sort of, um, hopefully, uh, helping raise the voices up. Things like National Geographic. It does not hurt your career to be sort of quoted in National Geographic, I would imagine, if we put it that way. I, I would hope. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> so Maya, you have a PhD, you've done top tier research, but you reached a turning point, and I think you referred to it as a crisis. You actually called it a crisis somewhere along the way. So can you talk about that? Like what changed your path from going the academic path? Especially from the point of you hated writing before. That's, that's astonishing <laughs> to me, actually. Yeah. You know, like that's a great evolution. I want to hear more about this. I mean, candidacy. <laughs> Oh, really? okay. <laughs> I, that was sort of when I really feel like I hit breaking point. And it was, I mean, candidacy is hard for good reason. Um, but I think... Let me just interject here for people who don't know. Candidacy is... Oh, yeah, the, yeah. It's usually, well, for me, it was a three-hour oral exam with, I don't know, five professors just asking you whatever they wanted to, basically. And it's sort of a... It's sort of a bar you, you you must get over to move into becoming a PhD candidate. It's halfway through PhD or somewhere around that thing, but it's a, a PhD event. Yeah. It's a big exam halfway through that is extremely stressful and horrible, and it's horrible yeah. for me. I, I hated it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. For I don't know us, anybody who loves it. Yeah. In addition to the multi-hour-long oral exam in front of all of <laughs> your uh, all of the professors, each one of them also gave a written exam in mine. Oh wow. Oh. So I had. The week leading up, I forget how long each one I had for. They all had varying rules for their written version of the exam. And then at the end of that was the oral. Oh, that is brutal. It was, it was, it was hard. <laughs> um, oh, goodness. No wonder okay. I would have turned. Uh, yeah, that's a huge turnoff. But, but you got through it. Well, so right? yeah, I did. And it was, but I think that the thing that candidacy made me do was really think through what I wanted. What was this really the path I wanted to go down? Mm -hmm. Were these things that really what I wanted to spend my life doing? What, what do I enjoy doing? And am I, am I getting away from it? 
you know, it's funny because my boyfriend at the time, like I was in crisis mode. Like I was, I'm a little stress ball normally. And then you give me like a month off from everything else to just focus on the fact that I'm about to take what felt like the biggest exam of my life. (laughs) Um, I was falling apart. And my boyfriend at the time, he's now my husband, asked me, he was saying, you know, I think you need to do some art. (laughs) Um, (laughs) That's what I tell my wife when she's stressed out. (laughs) That's great. Oh, that's That's funny. It's true, though. I mean, I did. I I don't know why I really stopped. At some point, I did, though. I used to do a fair bit of art, actually, and, and as high school. That was sort of... I was like part of one of my focuses back then. And I mean, a- anybody wants to see some cool geoscience visualizations, go to Maya's website, yeah. click on the visualizations tab. <laughs> they are awesome. Well, they are oh, they are you. so cool. Right. No, they are. It, is that where that comes from, mm-hmm. Maya? Yeah, so that was that period of time, really. So I being the type A kind of person that I am, decided that I wanted to not only do art, I was going to find a scientific illustrator. I found a scientific illustrator in Columbus who was willing to let me study with him with a focus for scientific illustrations. So once a week at night, I would go in secret for a while um, (laughs) and study scientific illustration. And I loved it. You know, I knew that there were people behind those images that you see in textbooks and you see on websites and things. I just never really thought about that as a career path. And so it was really very cool to learn about what he did. And um, the person that I studied with actually is kind of an old school scientific illustrator. He has all these stories of being in the operating room when they were doing surgeries because he was sketching the like process because photography at the time and digital kind of art at the time really wasn't good enough to show what they wanted to highlight. And so it was, it was wild. And so Um, yeah, and I just I loved it. And so at that point, I decided that I just was gonna find as much opportunity as I could for visual communication as I can, like anything. So I volunteered to make um, a lot of papers for I mean, I know, you know, but for for the audience who might not know a lot of papers these days request um, scientific papers request images that sort of is like a visual version of the abstract. And so I made those for some of my colleagues or helped them with theirs. I made presentations for people. I helped people with their posters for conferences when they were presenting at conferences. And I threw everything I had whenever I made my posters. I just like tried to make them as visual and exciting as possible because I just wanted to figure out ways to really communicate things in a much more exciting kind of way. So I have two side questions here really quick. Do you do your own visuals for your articles in National Geographic? I wish. I wish. (laughs) Okay. And do you still do the visualization thing like uh, freelance or something on the side? So I, when I was at Smithsonian, I did a few, I I believe one of them was on my website. I did a few small ones for Smithsonian, which was really fun. Um, I did like a explainer about food waste and how much water you're losing. And so we were trying to show like with one tomato, this is how many bathtubs of water, like that sort of thing. Um, which was, it was a lot of fun. I, unfortunately, my contracts with Nat Geo are such that I can't take on side work. Um, and, okay. and they have a very high bar for the types of graphics. I mean, we have such a fantastic graphics department and I can't even feign to, to say that I can do what they do. So, but I have had a lot of opportunity collaborating with them. They've been very generous in letting me work directly or like talk with them about how things should be presented and what 
things should look like, um, which is a lot of fun. I actually do have, I believe one of them a while back, I gave me a credit on one of the diagrams. I believe it was in an article about an early human species called the Denisovans. And we were making this plot showing um, human, they've intermixed with humans, mated with humans quite a few times throughout our history. And so we were trying to track that through genes. And so it kind of shows uh, where those points of mixing happened mm. uh, geographically and also through time. And so I think oh, I, I think cool. they gave me a credit on that one because we worked really hard on trying <laughs> to figure out how to make that's, it. That's sense. cool. But yeah. Okay, cool. we've taken a massive deviation into visuals, but yeah. I want to go back to like the it's writing true. transition. Yeah, yeah. Here. yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, the writing transition is just sort of like, it's strange though, because it just, at some point it was sort of, I realized that I don't have this intense of a visual background to immediately jump into visuals. But I did throughout my time as a, in my PhD and through Smith really, college was a huge part of me really learning how to put words together, make sense in a story. And geology, I mean, I had to write papers along with those visuals. And so it really helped me think about what I was trying to tell in the visual and then lay that out in a story. And so I gradually had gotten better at writing. It was still not my favorite thing to do, but um, it was not quite as insurmountable as it once seemed. So at the end of grad school, I actually applied for a AAAS mass media fellowship, which is this fantastic program directed at scientists that give them an opportunity to spend a summer at a media outlet across the United States. They have a variety of ones they collaborate with. And at that time, I was actually placed at National Geographic, and it was very much a throw you in, sink or swim kind of situation. And it was terrifying, but thrilling. And I, that summer, I decided that I didn't want to turn back. That was it. That's a great story. I love very that. Cool. That's awesome. Well, Jesse, I'm going to finish up this real quick. What's been your best field experience so far in your career? So I haven't gone out in the field quite as much as a journalist as I may have liked, um, but I did a quite a bit of field work during grad school. And that counts. So and you, yeah, you I was about to say, to okay, because if that counts, I mean, I think honestly, one of my favorite field experiences was my first big field experience. And that was um, in Svalbard. It was with one of these programs. It was a research experience for undergraduates or an REU program. And I did it, I think it was right before my senior year. It was my honors project. And it was just, I just remember it was so incredible. The landscape there is, it's so far north that there are very little plants. The tallest plants are these little shrubby guys. And so like all the rocks are just out so you can see them. Like the mountain ranges, you can just look up and like see these beautiful folds and and see these glacier deposits. And so every morning we had this sort of like, we called it our commute. And so we'd get up, we were staying in a little... Um, I think it was like a little inn. It's the only place you can stay on the island. And so it was right near this lake and we'd pack up our packs and we'd trundle over the lake and then we'd take this little rubber boat across the lake. And this, it would be normally around sunrise when we would get out because you wanted to be, um, well, actually towards the end of that, there was a lot of sun because it was in the north. But anyway, um, it <laughs> yeah, felt very far. early, like low on the horizon. Maybe I'm not remembering <laughs> time, but, you know, it would be just early. And we take these little rubber boats from one side to the other. And then we would just hike and collect samples. We were collecting rocks to do various projects, trying to figure out glacier movements. Um, so we were collecting rocks to do some some dating exposure. One of the 
um, students was doing exposure dating and I was studying um, lake sediments. So I took cores of the sediments of this really deep um, glacial lake and we would load our packs up. We would spend extremely long days out in the field, load our packs up so we could barely carry them. And we would hobble back with these, all of our samples and it was just <laughs> every day. And I just, I loved it. Oh, it was so great. That sounds so good. Yeah. Hauling rocks. Yeah. yeah that's a good field experience right there. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. So, I, I, I have so many questions to ask you about your job and how you interact, yeah. but we only have time to kind of skip around a little bit. But how do you decide what to highlight? I mean, there are so many papers published, even in my little very niche field of science, like I can't even keep up by reading all the ones that are relevant. Like how do you, covering all the breadth that you cover, how do you decide like what's interesting to write articles about basically? Yeah. I don't know. Just can you walk me through that decision-making process? That's a good question. <laughs> I wish that I had a, a, like a thought tree. That would be really organized <laughs> of me. Honestly, it's things that catch my attention. So I've, okay. and how do I just, you know, I, I guess I'm trying to think of like the types of things. I mean, looking at your publication list, it looks like everything catches your attention. I, there's no, yeah. there's like yeah. you, you, you've written about so much interesting stuff, which I hope we get time to cover a little bit, but. Yeah. I mean, I think that there are so many good stories everywhere. And I think that that's one of the most exciting things. And so part of what actually, I mean, it is something that I struggle with, honestly, because I want to write everything. And so a lot of the time I end up pitching a lot of things and then I have to kind of walk back and it's like, okay, what's realistic for you to do? What's realistic for our team to take on? Um, and so I always feel bad because I um, uh, sometimes scientists will send me studies, which I so very appreciate when a scientist I've worked with in the past or even out of the blue just emails me work that they have coming up. It helps me not only if I don't write about it that particular time, it helps me keep on top of the field, but it also just is I it's fantastic. And so but I always feel really bad because a lot of the time they're fascinating things. It's just like <laughs> at the time we just don't have it's not the right moment. So. Um, you kind of have something that interests you and then you go have to go pitch it to the editorial staff mm -hmm. and, and do those get rejected frequently or do you kind of have mm -hmm. a high success rate with your pitches? Uh, like how, how does it, how does that work? <laughs> On the season, um, you okay. know, there are times where I get a few, like I just went through, a, I think I just pitched like four or five and they all were accepted. Like, and I was like, oh, wow. Um, but then I go through periods where like nothing's accepted. So, you know. Okay. Um, have, have you ever had a time when you had an idea that you wanted to write about? You had an article, a topic that you want to write about that you knew this is good and it got rejected? Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> you care to share? Um, well, there are. Um, you don't need to if it's uncomfortable. You don't need it... to. I'm just curious. If so, if you can, I'd love to hear it. But I guess I can share the one actually that's out now. So there was a team in the White Sands doing work in the White Sands National Park. And I talked with them two years ago. Two years ago? Maybe three years ago. The pandemic has made time yes. nonsensical, <laughs> yes. so maybe it was three years ago. But so I talked with them a while ago. They had some fantastic research at the time studying these footprints, the longest trail, continuous trail of human, early human footprints, I believe, is all the right things to make that superlative correct. But it's, it's they're beautiful footprints in the sands there. And the, the White Sands National Park is pretty amazing because these gypsum sands, they have the salts that kind of loose, they 
bind them together in these beautiful prints, but they also get destroyed very quickly once they're uncovered. And so they uncovered this beautiful path of prints. And I talked to them about this work and I got a sense that there was more there. Like when I was talking with them about it, they talked, they kept referencing so many more prints, so many more prints. And I got a sense that there was, they found something big. At the time, they didn't want to say because they were concerned about this coming out. Um, and so I pitched it and I said, it's big. Like, I know it's big. I know they have they have this. I have examples of other things they found, actually, that still aren't published. But I, I gave them the examples. But I was like, but I know that there's even more there. And I think that if we get in now, we can send a team out. We can take photos. It could be a thing. The problem was I didn't have the story. And to my editor's credit, they're right. I didn't have the story. So it was a lot of, it would have been a lot of money and time to invest in a thing when I didn't have what the big thing was. And I couldn't tell them that at that time. So they were totally correct where they were standing. But I have to say, I felt a little vindicated when three years later, they reach out and say, oh, hey, by the way, we have this study coming out. And what they found were beautiful human footprints that are among the oldest and definitely the most sure, surest dated of this age of human footprints in the Americas. So these were dated to the 20,000-ish range and it pushed back the by thousands of years, the last kind of sure dates that we have. Um, wow, wow. I, cool. I'm, I can't believe you chose this one to talk about Maya because I've read it. I read your. Oh, article. really? Oh, cool. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you do they send you out to locations to do your research? Like how often do you get to do that? I'm not as often as I would like, but we're, I'm working on it. I'm, I'm picking those stories. So I'm still I mean, I'm still very this is my third I just finished my third year. I guess I'm like three and a half years at Nat Geo. So I'm still considered a fairly like young, uh, like I'm, I'm not, I'm not um, sort of senior staff. So I am working my way up to being able to travel more, um, but it is, it is costly and you do have to justify the stories. So I have some coming up though. So stay tuned. I'm, I'm really, I'm really trying to get them to send me to Iceland. <laughs> oh, cool. Oh, that'd be awesome. I get about one of your articles that crosses my feed about once a month. Oh, really? Does that wow. sound? Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Does that sound about right? Um, Right for? Well, like, are, are you writing more than that? Oh, yeah. I generally write, I mean, it depends a little. The pandemic, honestly, has been a bit weird for Cadence in terms of how much I'm publishing because we've, we keep switching gears of like, oh, we need this and that. And I tend to hop on like helping out with when there's, um, when we have kind of immediate things happening with COVID, like we write up short news briefs and things like that. But generally okay. when we're talking like full kind of articles, I write like three to four in a month, but occasionally it's more and occasionally it's less if I'm working on bigger projects. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Cool. Uh, Maya, um, have you had topics that have been disappointing articles, maybe that have been disappointing, maybe from the standpoint of, you know, people should care about this more than they do. I'm assuming does National Geographic get some like tracking or sort of clicks or I don't know, whatever oh, yeah. the, the, the metrics are like, are there ones that, yeah. I, metrics. <laughs> yeah, of course. Metrics. Yeah. But. <laughs> yeah um, I was trying to think about this and I'm not, there's so much that goes into whether an article does well or not that um, it's tough to say that there are, I hate to say there are entire topics that just don't get read because there are always exceptions to those things. 
And I think thinking about it, one of the things that I think I would really love to see more that I, I mean, I don't even get to write these stories though, is sort of like after an earthquake or a volcano or something like that happens, I have trouble getting these pitches through even the kind of follow-up stories about this is still happening. This is still going on. And I think people's attention just diverts to the next thing that's happening, the next disaster. And I think that it's really important to continue talking about sort of these events that are, are ongoing. It's hard because it's, it's hard both to know how to cover them. And also oftentimes, I mean, they aren't the most hopeful articles really to be reading. A lot of these times those situations are devastating, but it deserves more of attention. And part of the reason why I don't write as many of those is because they don't get read as much. And so it's hard for me to justify them to my editors. To me, that's really interesting because I love those throwback articles that I, you know, because you're right, you, you move on mm -hmm. to the next thing. Mm -hmm. And I love it when you're brought back. I don't, I don't know. It's just really interesting. I, Chris, I, you're just so I old come school, man. You're just, you're just... <laughs> that's true. That's true. <laughs> um, All right. So kind of touching on that note, are there, I guess, I don't know quite how to frame this question, but. Are there things that are very frustrating to you about science communication, either, you know, no. the skeptical generation that is exists in the world today or sort of extreme science skepticism or things that like, you know, from my position that, that people in my role can do better that like, should I be doing something better as a, a, a researcher to improve the situation in some way, you know, like, can you, I don't know, can you, can you sort of yeah. speak to that? So science skepticism itself could be kind of its whole other podcast. Um, yeah, but definitely. Yeah, even just sure. kind of touching on the most shallow kind of part of that, though, is just having stories read past the first few lines is not always, I mean, like, I think it's really tough that the vast majority of people, to know that the vast majority of people really only read the headline of a story. And then beyond that, the next largest, like, if you're thinking about this in terms of a pie slice, the next largest slice are people that are read the first paragraph or two. And so the number of people that actually get all the way through or even halfway through is just a much smaller number. And I think that that's it just, just really hard. And it's said a lot. I mean, Twitter now has their little thing that pops up that says, do you want to read this before you share an article? Oh, really? Okay. I didn't yeah. Know that. Yeah. They added that feature in, which I, I always, it always cracks me up when I'm retweeting someone who's tweeting my article and it asks me if I want to read it because it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I've read it a couple of times. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think <laughs> I know it. <laughs> that's really funny. That's, that's amazing. <laughs> but yeah. Anyway, I, I think that that's, um, yeah, that's a tough part, but. Can, can I ask, so on that, do you, do you like get that granular of data? Like, do you know how many people read all the way through your article or how many people clicked on it and just spent a couple seconds looking over the images or something like that? Like, so we used to actually have tracking that would show how far it scrolled down, or the reader scrolled down in the article, which I thought was really interesting. They, they switched over to a new system now so that that's no longer tracked, but we do have time on the page. So it gives you a rough sense of how long they spent. Um, and then we also have unique, so the, what they clicked, um, how many people clicked into it. And then also we track, I mean, we track a variety of things, but another metric that they often look at is do they immediately click out or do they click into another article? So you can tell kind of if you're 
bouncing into. Man, I wish I could have that for some of my research articles. I mean, the five <laughs> people who've, who've ever read Jesse, it. I'd be, uh-uh. <laughs> that'd be interesting data. <laughs> you don't want those metrics, Jesse. Yeah. You tr- you're going to have to trust me. It'd be super depressing. <laughs> you just, it, honestly, I, I've been trying to pull myself, like when I first started at Geo, I was all into like looking at the numbers and like it goes up and you immediately like look at the dash because we used to have this like live feed that shows like immediately how many people are. When we were back in our offices, actually, in the Nat Geo office in the front, there's this huge screen where they displayed this chart of like uh, which articles are top. So you have an order of articles and they flip around, but it's because it's live ordered by the number of people on each article on the page and they have traffic on the site and all these other. Anyway, yeah. Um, But I've been trying to pull back from that because I feel like one, it's just sort of depressing. Like it starts, if you really fixate on that, it really. And Mm. the other thing is that I think it gets into my head about what I'm choosing to write about. And I don't want that to happen because I think that I, um, yeah, I mean, I just, I don't want my judgment about what's interesting and would make a good story be swayed by the fact that the last time I posted something in this category, it didn't do so well or something like that. Okay. That's a really good point. I so appreciate that you made that, like you're trying to be honest with your writing and not be swayed by the polls. And yeah, that's great. But it's got to be hard too. Yeah, I was about to say, it's not always easy. I mean, I definitely, I feel like so much of writing though, I get in my head about various things. It's a very (laughs) (laughs) cerebral sort of, but yeah. So uh, to, to kind of the other side of the question, just the the sort of researchers like I don't know are there things that frustrate you about science I mean scientists we are a neurotic bunch and you know (laughs) is there something that frustrates you about that or or maybe let's frame it as something that we could do better yeah so it might sound silly actually but one of the things that I often tell researchers to think about when talking about their work is start as if you were as if you were writing it in a tweet because Think about how you would convey the essence of what you're doing in 280 characters or less. It's not easy. And you have to uh, sort of figure out what are like the most sort of important and catchy things about this work and then go from there. And yes, you're not going to be able to capture the nuance and uncertainties, but that gives you that sort of grabby line that is really the thing that often draws me in. So a lot of my stories actually have come from things scientists have put out on social media or reached out to me in an email and it comes from a line or two. It doesn't come from six paragraphs that I I wade through and I, well, sometimes it does, but not always. A lot of them come from those just like a couple lines that catch my attention enough that I'm like, huh, I want to know more. And I just, it's, it's that I want to know more. This is a thing that we often talk about when we think about headlines is like you want to say a thing that is enough to get someone thinking about it, but not knowing what the answer is. Oh, that's interesting. Chris, we got to think about this for podcast episode titles. I mean, well, a knowledge. You have big knowledge gaps, Jesse. So Well, that, that, you know. that's, that's true. That's interesting because, you know, one of the most famous professors in our department uh, teaches a, a graduate level writing course. And she takes all the grad students to the exercise of like, okay, write out your thesis, you know, abstract or title. Mm-hmm. And now cut it in half. And, and then, okay, come back and cut it in half again. Oh. And she does that all the way down to you get five words. So you get five <laughs> words to describe your PhD thesis. And, she's, and it's like an amazing exercise yeah. to do. And so I've started doing this for like paper titles and proposal titles and stuff is like that. I love it. 
it's really, yeah. I, that's yeah, cool. I, I, but I like the idea of cutting it down so many times. I mean, because that's essentially the same thing. It's really, you're trying to just capture what is, what is that really important point I want to make? But then also, like, if I'm giving you 280 characters, I think that's a few more words than five. But like, what are, what, what then go back, take those five words and go back. What is the thing that's going to catch people's attention and add that between five words? And, and Very cool. I like that. That's a great answer. I, I appreciate that a lot. Okay. I'm actually really interested in your answer to this, Maya, because I, it's it's so funny. I've, you know, when when Jesse floated uh, this out with interviewing you, and then I start looking into you. And once you got over the Ohio State PhD, first of all, <laughs> yeah. Once I got over that, I've read a lot of your articles, and so what's your favorite article that you've ever written? Do you have one? <sighs> People always ask this question and it's such a tough question <laughs> because I have, I love different aspects of different articles and I feel like it's always like the latest article. I'm always like the most, the one that's really in my memory the most. I think thinking about the things just like even from this last year, one of um, the ones that I really enjoyed the most that I felt like I just had the most fun writing was this story about this series of rocks in Maryland that um, oh, are... hey, one of my good friends was the the oh really senior author that's on right. this Mike Ackerson yeah oh, we, we yeah. overlooked that Carnegie oh, this is great good. I was so happy to see your article come out on the on this paper anyway continue yeah. sorry no it's, I'm, I'm, it's I'm, uh, this so is good. this is great well so it started actually from Twitter so I saw I don't remember who tweeted it but someone tweeted hey that's cool there's a bit of mantle in Maryland. And I was like, huh? <laughs> hey, that's a great knowledge <laughs> gap tweet right there. I don't understand <laughs> Exactly. They linked the paper and I read the paper. And, and so the, the researchers looked at this series of rocks that have been studied for decades. And often this, there's sort of hypotheses that have been flying around. And in general, people thought that what the researchers' conclusion was, was actually the case, but these rocks have been smashed and squashed and sat out under the rain. So it's really hard to tell what happened to them. And so the scientists took kind of high tech way to go back and take another look really closely and really detailed and realize, yeah, you're right. But the idea was that this these rocks were part of the mantle underneath the sea floor. It's a bit of just like ancient ocean floor that has been ripped up in the process of the continents kind of colliding together and then tearing back apart. And, and a little piece of that ancient ocean that we don't have anymore, it was, it was closed many, many years ago, is now up in Maryland. And so I had a chance to go out with um, two of the study authors and, and they took me around to the sites and we looked at the rocks and I just, it was so much fun. Oh man, that's, that's very cool. <laughs> yeah, I loved it. I mean, one of my most favorite, I, it's like my favorite part of that story, and this is kind of silly to like, like a part of the story, but one of my favorite things was that before we drove out to where the mantle was, they were taking me to a few other sites. And these are things that when they existed on the seafloor, they were sitting above the mantle and they were like, okay, we're going to drive to the mantle, but what, what you need to watch, watch the trees as we drive, just look at the vegetation, try to figure out what happens while we're driving. And What's crazy is that because of the chemistry of the mantle, the area that they think is is part mantle rocks, um, the, a different variety of plant life can survive. Oh, wow. Has a chemistry yep. that's toxic to a lot of plants or doesn't have the right kind of stuff, nutrients for these plants to thrive. So only some 
kind of more shrubby kind of rugged plants really make it there and you can really see it and i just i thought it was so cool i was just totally geeking out in the car <laughs> that's really cool and chris we've stumbled upon a real use for biology is to identify rocks <laughs> We've been looking. Chris we, and I, both of our fathers are high school biology teachers. Oh. We're high school, and so we have this longstanding family, you know, battle between biology yeah. and geology. So this is a use for biology. Because we've been, yeah, we, we've been <laughs> looking for the one thing that is yeah. like, it doesn't just cover up our geology. Now it actually helps explain our geology. Yeah, that's, that's great. actually, that's, that's kind of awesome. nice. I like that. I like that. Yeah, I'll let my dad know. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, you can tell him. Yeah. <laughs> Maya, um... So looking into you and your career and reading your CV, it is undeniable that, that it, like, you have a purpose. Can you explain, like, what drives you? What, how do you see that? Or is Chris making this up in his head, you know? that, that <laughs> It's I'm always not. possible that Chris – no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No. no, I mean, <laughs> I think I've always tried to live with purpose. And I think, you know, it's funny because the pandemic has – it's made – it's turned everyone into chaos, of course, but I think for, for journalism, it's been an interesting time because I think I've started to question what I'm doing. It's felt like what I'm doing compared to, you know, I'm writing about rocks. People are dying. Like I need to be writing about that. And I have contributed some to the COVID reporting and I write about that when needed, but like I really struggled with where my place was in all of this and what I should be doing because partly I'm, I'm not super qualified. To, I don't have that kind of microbial background to, or viral background to be able to, to really dig into immunology and all of that sort of thing. But at the same time, I felt like as my duty as a journalist, I needed to be reporting on this. Um, and so I I've, I've kind of taken a loop throughout the past couple of years, but I've come back to where I think I started. And so sorry, the long answer to your question though, but I think my purpose generally is I, I want to inspire other people to really appreciate what I call a strange and stunning world around you. Like, Ooh, that's a good line. There are so many processes that are always ticking away. And so like, whether we're talking about tectonic plate movements, things that happen really slow or things that happen really fast, like volcanic eruptions, like I, there is so much happening in every single one of those. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's, I want to make people question what they're seeing and ask why. I hope, my hope is that if I can get them interested in those kinds of stories, that it kind of can open up more science to them for people who maybe aren't at all interested in science. Because I know a lot of people, you say the word geology, you say the word chemistry, and their eyes glaze over, they, they shut down. Yeah. But there's so much more to it. And so I think that really is, is what I see as my purpose. And it's even science of the everyday. Like one of, one of the quirkiest stories I think I've ever written is the science behind a Slurpee. There's actually a lot of chemistry there. <laughs> like, um, That's interesting. I, I didn't see that one. Yeah, it science was um, back when I was at uh, Smithsonian, we did this sort of history of objects kind of series. And that was one of them for Slurpee Day. Um, I wrote about, yeah, the history was fun. I tracked down the son of the inventor of the Slurpee and we, we talked about his first, the first one. But anyway, yeah, I mean, it's just, there's science everywhere. And that sounds kind of cliche, but it's true. There's science to everything that we do. And so I think that, you know, trying to make people look a little closer and think twice about things. Maya, can I, uh, Jesse, don't Go. get on me about being a rambly old man here. <laughs> all right, all right. I make no promises, but 
Maya, what you said, like, um, I, I really appreciate that. First of all, your purpose and how you view things, but I want to maybe just put things from or state things from my perspective. You have this gift, you have this gift to write, and you also have this, you have a, a PhD in geoscience. Don't undersell the importance of that because, you know, our planet, it's the only one we have. There's no planet B. And your gift is to inspire people to appreciate Earth. That's pretty damn important. Well, I appreciate that. I I appreciate that. And I guess I, I didn't fully articulate. But yeah, I mean, I think after kind of doing my loop, that was sort of, that's where I've arrived back at of writing about these things, even if I'm not writing about climate change directly, so much is tied with it, but trying to just make people care about science and care about what's happening. Um, right. I, when you say that, you know, you mentioned the word geology and people's eyes glaze over. Um, I, I don't understand that. And we need to, I think we need to change that. Well, you don't understand how people can, but you know that they do. I mean, we've I do. I, yeah, I, I absolutely yeah. do. That, I didn't mean that. Yeah. Chris and I have talked about this a lot of, well, you know, why we like doing this podcast. A lot of geo- geologists and geoscientists know that that happens. And so we're glad that you're out there changing it a little bit. Absolutely. So, like on that note, you know, you've won lots of awards for science journalism. You've worked at the Smithsonian, <laughs> the National Geographic. Like, I don't know, to me, it seems like an amazing job and a dream job. What's next? Is it a dream job? Is there other stuff out there that you want to try and do? Like... <laughs> Where do you go from here, I guess? Yeah, that is a, that is, that's a question I've been asking myself. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. No, I don't, I, I have, it's been fantastic working for them. And I see there's a lot of more things that I would like to do there. I've been really working towards bigger features. Right now, being in sort of the regular news grind, I'm like always kind of chasing the next thing, next thing, next thing. And I would really love a chance to dig into something, something bigger. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. I just want to understand the National Geographic, like the difference there, because I I, I sort of have this vision of National Geographic as the the booklet kind of thing. And that the online version is just, is that, but is there a difference between news articles and feature articles that you're describing here? Yeah. So I guess I'm talking about feature as in magazine features. Um, Oh, okay. There's National Geographic digital news and those stories tend to mainly live on the website. Sometimes they're pulled into the magazine. I've had multiple ones that are kind of, they're pulled into what we call the front of the book. All of, there's a series of pages and I forget the number at the beginning of every magazine that are kind of like shorts, like a paragraph or half a page kind of thing. Um, And I've written some of those or converted some of my digital articles to a much shorter format for those. But in general, magazine features, they are much more, so we assign photographers to take unique photography. Um, In general, reporters do kind of field, they go out into the field to do field work um, for those. And they tend to be, have a lot longer lead time. So I'm often working for a few days on a story and that's, uh, yeah, generally like I'll, I'll do reporting maybe for a period of time while working on other things. But when I'm really like sit down and do it, it's like, okay, I have a day or I have two days to write this and then we move on. So really being able to interview and talk to a wide range of people and, and dig into a topic. I'm working towards that. Um, that's sort of Iceland. Fingers crossed. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> um, but yeah, I have a couple. I have a couple, actually. That's that's the most immediate one. But I have a couple that are brewing in the next few years. But I've also, you know, it's funny. I have recently really missed. I used to do a lot of volunteer work, working directly with students. 
And I really missed that. Like I, I enjoy writing and I, I'm, there's aspects to that that I really love, but I never actually interact with the readers very much. It's like, I get emails, which is lovely sometimes, sometimes they're not so lovely, but um, I get emails from readers and that's about the contact that I have. I miss doing the sorts of hands-on, like I used to work in an elementary school, like on, on weekends or evenings sometimes, and we do we do like experiments and things like that. And I, I've been looking into opportunities maybe to do a little bit more of that here and there. But yeah, I, I think things that are a little bit more hands-on, I would like to kind of start incorporating back. All right, Maya, this has been a real pleasure. We always kind of end our interviews with this last question. What has been your best day as a geoscientist? <laughs> that's a fun question um we get some fun answers <laughs> this past spring i went to oaxaca mexico so i was tagging along with a group of cavers that were working they they trying to find pathways through what might be the deepest cave if they can find their way to the base of the cave and and wow. back Decades ago, they, some people did dye tracing. So they dropped dye in the top and traced it where it came out on the bottom. And so they found that if, if they could connect that whole system with a person passing through, it could be considered the deepest cave in the world. So they've been, they've years, they've spent years there. So I had the opportunity to go out with them and actually had, I trained on the, they have a ropes course set up. So you have to learn how to use all of the climbing or caving equipment and so I got to actually spend a day in the cave going down in Cheve. Um, and it is just, it's like a, a cathedral is the only thing that comes to, the word that comes to mind. It's just massive. There are, there are caverns in there that are just unimaginably large, but yet you're underground and it's just mind boggling all the way down. And you're surrounded by rock. Like it's a geologist's dream. Like there's formations <laughs> everywhere and they're beautiful little crystalline things growing. And we at some point descended alongside this water that was coming off of another rock. And I, there was just a moment in there where I really got in the zone of um, working with the equipment. So you have to change from rope to rope. They're only have so long of segments um, for, for safety reasons. And so you, you go from one segment and then you change to the next. And every switch, you, there are multiple steps. And it's kind of like a rhythm once you get into it. And you're on this very large section. And each one, it clicks open and then it clocks down and then it clicks open and then you clock down. And it's like a, it's like a music. There's like, there is definite music. And you're in this cavern and you hear, there's like, barely any noise. You can hear water in the distance. And then the only other thing you hear is the echoing of this clicking and clacking and clicking and clacking as you go up. And it was just such a meditative, like, I remember saying to myself, absorb this, like everything, like check in with every sense right now. What are you feeling, thinking like sound? Because that moment to me was just, it was so cool. It was, I, yeah, I was having a hard time, having a hard time articulating how cool it was, but yeah. I no, you did a good job. Great job. That's very cool. Was, I can't say that would be my favorite. I'm, I don't, caves are really not my thing, but it's the way you described it is, uh, makes me want to go in it. So that's actually really saying something. Was this for an article, Maya? Um, potentially we're figuring it out right now. Oh, okay. It hasn't, all right. All right. It, it's okay. not, um, 
it's not out as of yet, but yeah, we're trying to figure out uh, what its final iteration will be, but yeah. Well, Maya, this has been a real pleasure. Uh, like I said, I've looked forward to talking to you for a week at least and even more. And uh, this is, yeah, this has been great. I've learned a ton. Super exciting. Thank you for your time. We really, really yeah, appreciate thank it. Thank you so much. Of course. Thank you. I really enjoyed chatting with you about all of this. Yeah, this is great. <laughs> this is great. All right. Well, we'll be in touch soon. Thank you. All Have right. a good one. Take care. You Bye. too. Nice to meet you. All right. Thanks for listening. As usual, please give us a rating and a review. We love that stuff. Send us an email, planetgeocast at gmail.com. We really like the feedback. The most important thing, though, share this podcast with somebody that you think might enjoy it. Yep, for sure. All right. Check in next week. Cheers. Cheers.